Hey folks, I'm John Moore, a marketer and podcaster at Salesforce, and this is Our Digital Nation. Our Digital Nation is a Salesforce podcast, but the views and opinions of our guests do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Salesforce. It's been suggested that we're living at the convergence of several crises, and these crises have forever changed the way we think about public health policy, the stability of our environment, and our humanitarian responsibilities to each other as citizens of the global community. As we collectively navigate new challenges together, we're also now gaining a heightened awareness of, and more importantly, acknowledging some old, long-standing challenges. Namely, the reality of an equality crisis that has seemingly dominated public discourse for the past several years. Today's guest in the third and final installment of our equity-centered digital transformation series is Jaya Katuria, Chief New Services and Systems Development, Department of State Bureau of Consular Affairs. Jaya is a trailblazer in her own right and is no stranger to having big conversations about innovation. As a matter of fact, Jaya was a leading voice at Salesforce's World Tour, a regional gathering of like-minded tech innovators that are using emerging technology to impact the world in big ways. Here's a snippet of her talk during the public sector keynote in Washington, D.C. The people who are sitting behind those uh, systems that we are designing for 8, 10, 12 hours a day, how frustrating can it get if those systems are not reliable, if those systems are not meeting their needs, if those systems are not giving them the information they need to be able to quickly perform the job that they do. So this is where, and then if you were talking about sustainability, being able to work from wherever people are, that's so critical. So that's the trust part of organization. And then of course, all of this, how your employees are going to feel is going to reflect in the kind of service that we will be providing to our public, the American citizens. So if we cannot, so in this day and age, I won't even say that American citizens expect the public services should be available 24 seven and easily accessible. I would say they actually deserve that these services are 24 seven available. And that sounds like an applause line to me. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Jaya is just one of so many brilliant minds contributing to some of the most exciting work happening in government technology today, but often finds herself standing out as a first or an only in many of the very influential roles she's occupied. In this conversation, we discuss her equality journey and how Jaya intends to be a catalyst for change and enduring transformation. Jaya, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. Really appreciate you being with us. How are you? I'm doing great, John. Thank you for having me. Fantastic. I'm glad to hear it. And we're excited to get into this conversation. Before we get started, I really want to give our listeners a little bit of insight on who you are, you know, who's sitting before us. I would love to hear from you about your equality journey, a bit of what has shaped and colored your personal and professional journey and brought you to where you are today. I would love to share that with you, John. It's uh, been in the IT for uh, 20 years now. And uh, believe it or not, it wasn't by choice, like, you know, that I was like a young girl 
and going through my college and saying, yeah, I'll do IT. It wasn't that way. In fact, I stumbled upon a career of IT. It was a pure accident. And in a lot of ways, actually, a reflection of circumstances, and may I say conservative, that I grew up in and uh, which landed a trained physicist. I have a master's in physics and was on the path to become a scientist and landed up in uh, information uh, technology. I started as a developer and I grew through the proverbial ranks, if you will, to take on more of leadership roles uh, in the technology realm focused on programs. However, what I noticed in my journey over over 20 years, I started becoming the only woman in a room full of fellow technologists. I somehow feel that I lost a lot of wonderful female colleagues, you know, in my journey. Now I'm at a phase of my career and life, and as a mother of daughter myself, I feel that I need to lean in to pull in more women to be excited about technology, excited about anything they desire, to be comfortable in making choices that might not meet other people's expectations of them, to be comfortable to not be the heroes, just be normal human beings and fulfill what their desires and wants are as a woman. Interesting. You mentioned that over the course of your career, you lost a lot of your female peers along the way. What do you think is the most common cause for that? Mm -hmm. So let me see, John. Let me answer that question uh, in two ways. So let Mm -hmm. me start with some stats right now. Only 20% or actually less than 20% leadership positions in technology are held by women. And only 30% of women over 45 are still junior developers. Now, remember, if these women are 35 and we assume that they started their career when they were 25, that means they have 10 years of experience. And 30% of those women with 10 years of technology experience are still junior developers. And guess, what does the stat say for men in the same range? Less than 5%. So what's going on? Why are uh, women not growing at the same pace as their male colleagues are. So I'll come back to it, what I feel, what's going on in there. But listen to this story. So I was talking to this uh, CEO of this company, and, you know, as the COVID situations are getting relaxed, some of his clients want people to be actually in the office and not be remote and all that stuff. And as he's hiring, so he reached out to his team and he mentioned to them that, you know what, the client now wants people uh, on site versus being teleworking. And some of the people on his team said that they are not interested in coming back to work and they are going to quit, which is fine. What is very interesting is is the reasons. The male colleagues who said that they do not want to come into work because of, uh, you know, they want to continue telework, the reason that they said was they do not want to fight the traffic every day. They are happy in their telework situations. They just come down and they can do their work and they don't have to get into a car and all that stuff. That is the reason why they are enjoying it. It's just a matter of perspective. And guess what? The women said that they don't want to come to work and they want to continue teleworking because they have child care situations to take care of. 
Now, I'm not saying that men are today these days are not uh, involved in child care, but what I'm saying is this small example just kind of hit me at my core that we have this team of, you know, males and females and what their perspective is when they are deciding upon where to work and what they are willing to give up. I think one of the things that happens is that in our society, women are still uh, the primary child care providers are the primary, you know, person to take care of household matters. And they do make a choice of putting that as a priority over their careers. So I think as a society, we need to provide that support. We need to provide that encouragement to women that they can continue to be good mothers and take care of their kids, and they do not have to sacrifice their careers to do that. It's not an or thing. It's an and thing. Now, how do we make it an and thing for women? That is, I think, something that we need to work as a, as a society And I can tell you, as a mother of a daughter and a son, I see that as one of the things that we all need to work is not only encouraging our daughters that they can, if they choose to, they can have it all, but also work on our sons to make sure that they are supporting whoever their partner would be so that they don't have to make it or for themselves if they decide to. This is an and conversation and you don't have to compromise. You don't have to sacrifice areas of your life that are just as important for other areas that you think will not allow you to accommodate all of who you are, all of what you bring to the workforce, all of that makes you up as a human. But I also love, or I should say, and I also love the fact that your perspective is this same thought pattern that is meant to empower young women who are coming into these roles, that same knowledge and insight should be shared, adopted, embraced and embodied and practiced by young men that are coming into these roles. In that if we're to be true allies, there's a specific way that we need to show up with empathy, understanding, openness, willingness to listen, and to learn and to better understand so that we can leverage the privilege that we have as men and the power systems that have been set up in favor of men to to correct these systems because women cannot be alone in the work of correcting these systems that they did not set up to work against themselves. (laughs) That's going to take a collaborative effort between women and men and people of all gender expressions and identities. So I really appreciate that you stated that. And and that leads me to, I want to skip down to this question about how your experiences specifically as a woman in tech have shaped or continue to shape the way you carry out your current role at the Department of State. Currently, I am uh, leading the CA modernization uh, initiative. By that, I mean uh, putting in technologies and uh, new systems to modernize all the CA services, which includes the passport services, 
the visa issuing services, immigrant and non-immigrant services, as well as all the council services for the American uh, citizens abroad. I'm also was actually until uh, last year was also overseeing the global uh, operations of all the databases around the world. So it was uh, it's a pretty big role of I would say a great responsibility and an exciting role and comes with a lot of challenges but also the satisfaction of being able to leverage technology which I do to support, you know, the American public at large. So how this has helped me in my current role, I think, just just for your background, so as a part of this role that I am in, I have like large teams that I lead both on the private sector and the public sector, and there are other offices that I need to work together very closely, again, in the private and the, and the, and the public sector to make, you know, some long-term decisions, some short-term decisions, and some big investments so overall. So as a woman, I think it has made me more sensitive to how people who are not well represented, like other women or other minorities in technology feel when they are not heard, when they are left out, or mansplained, quite honestly. I have experienced a lot of these myself. And it's funny that sometimes when I reflect upon some of the situations that I was previously in, call it my immaturity, call it my naivety, I did not realize it myself what was happening. So it's up to the leaders, and I feel that it is up to me now that when I see that kind of an experience happening to another younger colleague of mine is to, to be able to call that out, to be able to help her understand and explain the situation and correct such issues. There were, uh, in my experiences, some of the leaders that I met along the way who I will always be grateful for because they stood up for me and they helped me to get where I am today. So I guess as a woman leader in technology, I feel it's now my time to give back to that next generation of women in technology. So not only that they join the technology, but also stay motivated and continue their, their career path. I also think that being a woman has helped me sustain a much larger coalition and inclusive on a larger set of diversity for critical initiatives. There are no band of brothers, <laughs> if you will, of uh, where, you know, like-minded people are just sitting together in some smoky rooms or playing golf and making, you know, decisions on what should be done to take this initiative in a certain direction and then let everybody know. Just, I think, being a woman, I'm able to form a much larger group of people. I'm able to bring all of them together to work towards uh, towards a goal while also attending the urgent matters of life and family. So I think these two things of not creating any exclusive clubs and having a sensitivity towards diverse values and ideas and being able to champion where I'm not seeing that definitely helps me uh, shape how I work and my daily decisions in my current role. 
this is where I want to ask, I guess what I'll start calling now the golden question. <laughs> this is the mm-hmm. same question I've asked of anyone who has participated in this equity center digital transformation series. And the question is, in your experience, what do you believe the words diversity, equity and inclusion mean? And what role do you think these concepts as areas of practice, either individually or collectively, should play in organizational growth planning? I think the diversity and equity, which is basically being fair and impartial and including different diverse views, they are a bedrock to any innovation and progress that we we might desire. These principles to create a sense of belonging where people feel how much ever different they might be, but they are still an essential part of any team fabric to work on resolving any issues. And this is very important uh, in my job, especially working a state. And in fact, I would say in any job these days people are working on because everybody is dealing with such a vast set of demographic when it comes to their customers. So making sure to include all those voices is absolutely critical. Mm-hmm. And I heard you said areas of practice as individually or collectively. I don't believe that we can have these, any one of these areas to work as individual. They have to work together as one. So what I mean by that is that we cannot say that, oh, we have a diverse team, so I have age diversity on my team, I have a gender diversity on my team, I have background or ethnicity or educational diversity of my team, but then I do not provide a fair and an equitable platform for all those people to very safely share their thoughts and values so they feel that they are getting included in the process. So if we want to really harness the true value of diversity, we must have inclusion. Unless, of course, we're just looking to check the box, then yeah, we'll check the box and we'll get our stats. <laughs> but I don't think that's what we are trying to do here. So again, like I said, it's we don't want one or two, we want everything has to work, diversity and then equity and then making everybody feel included and and sense of belonging. There needs to be an honest application of these concepts for any organization, especially these days as the world is getting smaller, connected, and there continues to add more shapes, uh, whether it is background, ethnicity, values, age, or gender. I won't say that, okay, we can have a policy or data reports, or uh, the celebration month. I understand that those are very important things to do to create awareness, to to create uh, the excitement on this topic. But what is more important is an honest and a dedicated effort and a non-negotiable emulation of behaviors right from the leadership that show true commitment to actual application in the day-to-day functioning. So this is not something uh, that we can say, oh, we have a policy here, we will now go and hire X number of women in technology, or we're gonna promote X number of women in technology, or we are going to you know, have these celebration months that we have and we'll hold these events and all that stuff, but on the hindsight in our day-to-day functions, when we are actually sitting in a room, we are not going to provide these voices the equal platform. 
it won't work like that. I think it's up to us as leaders of the organization, male or female, to capture those behaviors and then stop them where they are having and also emulate the right kind of behavior to promote diversity and inclusion. Think about it this way. Brand loyalty, if you think, it's on the decline in the private sector. In public sector, yeah, we can say, you know, we have a monopoly on the services we offer. But even there, we have, you know, different demographics that we have to cater to. But on the private sector, the brand loyalty is on decline. You know, I mean, I look at my daughter, means uh, she goes and buys one thing, and she hears about that uh, company not doing the right thing, and she just drops it and goes off to another company that, you know, matches her value, that matches what she believes in. So this is a very different kind of customers. And then to sell them, we, all the companies, they need to understand what they need and how they want to be treated, which is, again, very different in every culture, which is very different in every gender and age group. So I think if we bring this diversity and make sure that it is uh, harvested in the most proper way through inclusion and that sense of belonging, we can bring in more insight into those target markets, which will only work when our uh, diverse set of people, diverse set of values and thoughts are included and treated fairly. I want to ask you this quick follow-on question that you mentioned about behavioral change. Yes, we want to establish policy. Yes, we want to put new standards in place, but the the strength with which you stated it, and I'm probably going to do a bad job of paraphrasing, but you talked about an honest and dedicated effort and non-negotiable commitment to behavioral changes. I wonder how you would notionally go about measuring successful behavioral change. And you're changing the culture of an organization at that point. How do you approach measuring success in that regard? That's an interesting question, John, because how do you measure if our success is uh, that when somebody like me is sitting in a room full of technologists, I am not the only woman sitting uh, in the room by actually just by the ratio I should 50% of that room should be women. And when I see that, I would see that as a measure of success. So one can also say, well, that is a measurable one, too. So why don't we just measure how many women are there in leadership positions, how many women are there who joined the technology and then left? So I won't say that these metrics and measurements and reports that we have, they do not have a purpose. I think they have a very important purpose to show us where we are. After all, when we are having these conversations, we don't want to have them based on what we feel, but that's one part of it. But we also need to be able to back it up uh, by data, which can just you know show us what the truth is. I would say we need to continue collecting this data and continue to use these metrics and measures to show what progress are we making. But when I'm talking about the behaviors on how are we actually acting when we are in a room full of people, when there are opportunities that are coming up and we are at a decision point of who to hire when both the candidates might be just equally qualifiable, those are the kinds of things in which I think we will just need to make a very cautious effort. And by a conscious effort, I mean is that having a hiring panel, which in itself is a diverse. Even now, I have seen so many hiring panels that I go into, and they are not diverse at all. How can we be absolutely sure 
that if there is a, a woman candidate and there is uh, another male candidate, and just by the nature of the hiring panel, which usually happens to be all uh, male uh, interviewers, they will not have an unconscious bias towards that female candidate. So I think when we are designing these hiring panels, we need to make a very conscious decision on how we are designing these hiring panels. When we are thinking about making uh, promotion decisions or any opportunity decisions, we need to make a very conscious decision. Do we have an unconscious bias in our mind? Are we making the right choice and we are just promoting one uh, particular kind of people and not the other. I don't know, uh, I read uh, Lean In by Cheryl Sandberg a few years ago. Don't agree with everything that she said in the book, but there are some things which I think she made a very good point of and they stuck with me over these years. And she said that men are hired or given opportunities based on potential where women have to prove themselves. And that is so true. Mm-hmm. So I think uh, being aware of these kinds of biases, being aware of these kinds of dynamics, which as uh, leaders, both males and females should be, either, and if they are not, they should be trained on these on a regular basis. And they need to keep that in mind when those decisions are made. Another thing what I would also make is, uh, and this is something which might seem a bit controversial at times, And this was also one of the topics that Cheryl Sandberg also mentioned in her book, which I kind of agree and see that, is when there are more of male leaders on the workforce and they are having to make a decision and they tend to bond with other males for various reasons because it's just, you know, on the safe side to bond with a male person than a female person just for what other office gossips and all that stuff. And also they see their younger selves in them. So if we can just, you know, have some kind of those training triggers or these ongoing conversations that take on more younger women under your wing or mentor them and that there is a safe environment for everybody to be able to provide that healthy mentorship relationship, a healthy professional relationship, I think that's also would help a lot in getting us to a point where both men and women are equally represented in technology. And honestly, I mean, this is something we'll just have to go through because once we have more women in the leadership positions, I'm really hoping that women will also see their younger self and other younger women and then reach out, lean in, and help them to grow. So this is going to become a self-propelling cycle. We just need to get there. And for now is to help get more women in the leadership position so that they can mentor the next generation. And we do need our men colleagues in the leadership positions, their help and their conscious and dedicated effort in, in helping make that happen, not only for us, but also for you know their own daughters or wives or sisters. Yeah. Yeah. We've got to collaboratively build that momentum. So Jaya, you mentioned in one of your statements earlier, also this notion of values, the fact that customers and customer expectations that are held today are largely built upon values. I like to boil it down to the concept of trust. Of course, here at Salesforce, trust is our number one value. And we think about the level of trust, the amount of trust 
that is being placed in us by our customers, the amount of trust that their customers are placing in them to not only deliver the right goods and services, but to do the right thing and to make the right decisions, make ethical, morally right decisions. And one of the things that I know is a big mandate right now across government that's informing a lot of initiatives, and in particular at the Department of State, is the mandate to transform the customer experience. And I'd love to hear from your perspective now that we're at a point where we can kind of talk about turning this these notions outward, because we've talked a lot about transforming inward. And I understand that these concepts need to be extended. These concepts of equity have to be extended to the way we serve the customer populations, the end user populations, the citizens that are actually the beneficiaries of the services that you're providing. What's top of mind for you there in building a customer experience that takes equity into account? So as you know that there is a government-wide initiative and an executive order also by the president to enhance the quality and the customer experience for all public services. There are about 30 or so such services which have been recognized across the various federal organizations. But for the State Department, it is the passport services. And we are currently actively actually working on rolling out a service where U.S. citizens will be able to renew their passports online from the safety and the comfort of their homes. And the whole process from all the way from intake to the issuance will be fully automated. So as I'm working on that, uh, just, just using this one particular uh, service, because I think it's going to have a far-reaching impact on tens of millions of U.S. citizens, there are, I would say, three things from the customer experience perspective that are on top of my mind here. One is experience parity, uh, which I mean regardless of who and how Americans are using the system. Just by the nature of... Uh, you know, the new systems being web-based, accessible through Internet. I would say the Internet is pretty equitable and, and inclusive for large demographic, but I'm especially, you know, when, it, when we're talking about the Americans here and domestic American citizens. But I'm also thinking about how people with special abilities use these systems. How would people of different age groups use the system? I remember uh, before joining uh, the Department of State, I was at OPM which is Office of Personal Management, think about it as being a big HR shop for entire federal government. So one of the things that OPM does is manage the retirement capabilities uh, for all federal uh, employees and millions of them. There was a study that uh, we conducted on uh, ease of one-time passcode for authentication. So remember, we are talking retirements here, so the target demographic is senior citizens mostly and who might not be very comfortable with using more than one piece of technology at a time to just get access to whatever information they might require uh, on a web-based system. So I think about the same way for various features on how, when we, now I'm thinking passports, elderly citizens' experience would be. Younger folks might use it completely differently. Maybe their phones use a selfie to take a picture to submit for a passport. 
So how do I maximize the reach of the service across various devices and browsers? All this while keeping it secured. How do we use plain English that anybody with all backgrounds in the U.S. can easily understand and can have a good experience when they are applying for renewing their passports? Second thing is to be very cautious of any technology that might have any bias built in. Not intentionally, but just how the way it works for now. So conducting exclusive research and making conscious decisions around those. These days we talk uh, about uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning. Those are great tools and technologies can give us great insight into a whole lot of data and we can rely on a lot of decisions that can help us. But we also need to be very careful into what data are we feeding train these systems. Because depending upon what data we are feeding into these systems, we might be introducing some kind of a bias into those systems. How do we leverage the latest ideas and technologies and bring them to bear? And this is where I think we can weave in more equity and inclusion of diverse ideas of backgrounds in hiring and retention processes, and better off we will be. Just using that example that you shared, I cannot wait to hop into the online automated passport renewal system. (laughs) (laughs) I will definitely be putting that to use 100%. That's extremely exciting for me. I just wonder if from your perspective, if there are any other exciting opportunities that you see on the horizon using leading edge technology, using emerging technology that we might be able to potentially look to for building these equity-centered transformation roadmaps? Yeah. So I would say there are a few things, especially, you know, with so much of innovation that is happening in the world of the data and what we can do with data and the knowledge that we can get from the data And then uh, the tools, especially the so many spawned up uh, due to COVID, the collaboration. So I'll start with the data. I think our uh, ability to collect and search large data sets to inform our progress in blind spots. So I'm thinking of if I can have, when I'm rolling out any new technology and I can have a way of capturing the experience of various people as they are dealing with the technology, any kind of a service that might be. And then I can overlay that on their diversity factor, which is whether that is background, race, gender, sexual orientation. And then I can see that if there is any kind of a disparity where uh, one particular group is having a better experience than any other group, then kind of diving into what are the reasons and actually make efforts to normalize or to erase that kind of an experience gap between this diverse group, I think could be very, very powerful. And this is something very basic. This is this is nothing very enormous in it. It's just we already have the tools and technologies to do this work is just a matter of making a conscious effort of actually doing that. I would say collaboration these days, I mean, the technologies these days, they offer uh, great platforms to collaborate and bring a diverse set of values and ideas together at a click of a button. Look at us. We are like talking to each other on Zoom at a click of a button. You send me an email and I click on the link and, and we are connected. We can see each other. We can talk to each other. We don't even have to be even present 
physically in the same room to have uh, such important conversations, I think that to me is a very powerful tool that the technology innovation uh, has given to us, uh, especially more so in the last two years. Uh, This provides us the ability to work from anywhere. And I'm really hoping that this aspect will help reduce some barriers to increasing engagement from previously underrepresented groups, especially working moms. Now they can use technology to what works for their life situation. And they will not leave the workforce and make their transition back a little easier. Especially in the field of system design, there have been significant shift in tools and platforms that allow for developers to work together remotely and their time schedules in different time zones and all at the same time delivering amazing results. So my call will be to all women who have chosen to do all that to not give up the technology field. Get back to coding or pick it up. You can do it from wherever you are. Jaya, this has been incredible. Thank you so much for sharing your time and your insight with us. I'm so appreciative. Thank you. Thank you, Sean. Thank you for having me. I hope uh, whoever, you know, especially the women who are listening into this, get some kind of motivation, a little nudge to seriously think about either joining the field of technology or if they're already in it, then keep growing at it. Do not give it up. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Jaya. That was Jaya Katuria, Chief New Services and Systems Development, Department of State, Bureau of Consular Affairs. To learn more about Salesforce's ongoing commitment to our core value of equality, visit equality.com. And to learn about other incredible trailblazers that are harnessing technology to bring about change in the world, visit salesforce.com forward slash public sector. Follow us on Twitter at SalesforceGOV and join the discussion on LinkedIn at Salesforce for Government. Thanks for listening today. If you want more episodes like this, please be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Moore from Salesforce, and this is Our Digital Nation.